0: Amen. Thank you, guys. Hey, guys, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. Actually, 2 Corinthians, chapter 2. This is going to go on the entire series. You know that, right? That's going to happen every time. 2 Corinthians, chapter 2. And we're going to be in verse 12 through 17 this morning. And while you're turning there, will you join me in prayer? Lord, we bow before you this morning, Lord, in humble adoration and in willing submission to your word. I pray, God, that your spirit would move in this place. I pray, God, that even now, Lord, your spirit would come upon me for the preaching of your word, not for my glory, not for heritage's glory, but for yours. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will speak your truth to your people in this place, that you will awaken understanding of the text, Passage, uh, passions for your mission, that, Lord, our souls even now would be prepared for the word to be shared, that it might produce fruit in our lives. And so, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King and my Redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 2, we are in a series now studying through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Paul had started this church many years earlier, he had addressed some significant issues that were going on in the church five years later when he wrote 1 Corinthians, and now at least another year has gone on since then, and Paul's again writing to the church in Corinth, but this time from an absolute broken heart. The people there, oh by the way, but if you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up really nice and high. I've been forgetting this lately, and so I've been corrected, and I'm glad I have. So if you need a Bible, just stick your hand up. There's some guys that will be more than happy to drop one in your lap as, you're walk, as they're walking through. Just stick a hand up nice and high. So anyway, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth at that time. And what he's doing is dealing with some really significant complications that have arisen because he plants the church, the church got off track, he writes to them to address some things going on, that's 1 Corinthians, And then in the time between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, some hucksters, if you will, have come in. Some people coming in preaching a false gospel, looking all polished, promising prosperity and fortune, and throwing Paul completely under the bus have come and they've deceived the people. And so Paul comes to visit, he gets beat up in that visit essentially, goes home, and now he is broken hearted as he writes the church in Corinth. Because he's not only addressing now some improper beliefs, some false beliefs, some bad theology, but he's trying to repair a relationship that he cares deeply about, as you're going to see in the text today. So Paul writes this from an absolute broken heart. And here in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ, to to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing." To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." Um, I have a, a, a tendency to be uh, blatantly open about things in my own life when I'm up here. Sometimes more more open than my wife would prefer. But uh, I'll give you a little window into my life. This is a little secret. Most of you won't know about me. Um, I like to fish. Um, I know you probably didn't know that, but, but I do. Um, I, this is actually, I had thought about this earlier. I was like, oh, this is silly. I'm actually wearing a fishing shirt while I preach, and that's what I'm going to say. But I am. I, I like to fish. Fly fishing in particular, that is my passion. I just love to get out and do that. I'm hoping to go tomorrow. I'll probably spend all day today just getting ready for that. I love to. Don't get to go as much as I used to, but I love to go fly fishing. And one of the places that I used to always go right after ice off was Diamond Lake. It's not as good anymore. I don't go there anymore. Um, I only go where they have big fish, and now it's all these little, that's a whole other story. But um, Diamond Lake, Right after the ice melted, used to be one of my favorite places to go. In fact, I loved to go out there while there was still ice on the water. And we would cast our flies onto the ice and then slowly drag them until they get to the edge of the ice and plop, and they would drop. And as they're sinking, there would be fish under the ice and they would just hit it and it was so much fun. I used to love going up there. But about two years ago, I went up there and I had a really unique and kind of crazy experience. Um, It was so cold. It was, again, right after ice off. Everything is still frozen in. There's, you know, feet of snow on the banks all around still. The only boat ramp that was open is on the north end of the lake where the marina and the store and everything are. So I usually like to be in the south end of the lake, but you had no choice, had to go up there. And that particular day, I was there with a friend, and the fishing was kind of slow, and we decided to kind of call it in early. So we made our way up to the marina, got the boat out, put it on the trailer, pulled around to the store, and went in to get some food. My friend had already gotten his food. He's already back in the truck. I was paying for my food, and then as as I finished, I came walking out, and when I walked out of the marina, there were two guys standing there, one on each side of the sidewalk that I came out of, and they were in uniform. They were forestry service, like forest rangers, or forestry service personnel, whatever they were. And they were there with this specific job, they were like getting the place open, uh, checking licenses, all of those sorts of things as the season was just getting going there at the lake. But they were standing there on each side of the path, and they were looking out into the water with this sort of puzzled look on their face. And as I kind of stood there for just a second when I walked out, I could hear what it was they were looking for. And out in the water, there was this really faint, help, help, help. Just over and over and over. And Tweedledee and Tweedledum here are just staring. And I remember standing there and I was like, do you guys hear that? And one of them, no joke, goes, yeah. Sounds like it's coming from the water. I was stunned, and they were just standing there. Now, now off to the left, there's these moorings, these docks where, they, where everybody parks all their boats, and you could tell it was coming from sort of that area, but couldn't see anything, but the voice is still there, continuous, this really faint voice, help, help, help. So I start running that way, drop the groceries, drop my drink, and I'm running. I can't see anything, I just hear this voice, but as I'm, I can tell I'm going the right way, it's getting a little louder as I get closer, and so I started yelling, I'm coming, I'm coming, just where are you, I'm coming. And just over and over, help, help, help. I get out to the dock, run out, and then it kind of spiders out, turn. And then finally, I turn this one corner, and down at the end of the dock between these boats, I can see her. There's this one hand just sticking up on the dock, holding on to the boat cleat in the water. The water temperature that day was 37 and a half degrees. Okay, They say that a super healthy, fit person might last 10 minutes in this water. This was a 70-something-year-old woman. Her husband had put the boat in the water, and he was parking the truck, and she decided to go ahead and step into the boat. And she put her foot on the edge of the boat. And when she did that, the boat started pushing away from the dock, and she went right down. And the only thing she was able to do was reach up, and she happened to grab a boat cleat, the cleat that you tie boats down to, and she was just holding on to it. Ran down to the end of the dock, and I kind of got down on my stomach, and her eyes were just gigantic. She was blue And so I got an arm under each one of her arms, and I was like, I got you, I got you. And I'm trying to get her out, but she's completely waterlogged with like a winter jacket on and all this stuff. There was no way I was pulling her out from that position. And then finally, you know, the other dudes showed up. So I'm able to just sort of hold her like that, and then they pulled her up out of the water. She'd been in there for about a minute already. I mean, it was a pretty gnarly situation. She was going to have to go to the hospital, definite hypothermia issues. It was a pretty big, pretty significant situation she found herself in. And so afterwards, the guy that runs the marina there, the, the big kahuna at Diamond Lake, whatever, we're over there and we're talking to the different people. And he was like, man, thank you so much for helping. I was like, talk to your boys. <laughs> like, she's, she's out there like, help. And they just stood there. And the guy goes, we didn't know where she was. I was like, do something. Run somewhere. Like, come on. Uh, we just didn't know. Now, why do I tell that story? It is not to, well, I guess I'm a hero. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. I'm just joking. Just joking. My wife will totally chew me out for that later. But here's the reality of it. Today's message is a pretty simple message. And I want you to know I've been praying even over what I'm going to share and even my own tone. Because what I want to talk about this morning, what I believe the text presents to us this morning, is something that has been burning in me, big time lately. And I've made the mistake before of being all fired up about something and getting up here and it's something God's speaking to me, not so much maybe something I should have and it just comes off heavy handed and, and all that and that's not my heart here. But here's what I believe. When you really boil it down, there's only two categories of people on the face of the entire earth. People destined to live and people that are destined to die. I'm talking eternally. What really matters, we could break ourselves down by different sports teams or different ethnicities or different nationalities or different languages or different um, socioeconomic groups. But when it really comes down to what's important at the end, we all boil down to one of two different categories. People that are destined to live forever. People that, not because they deserve it, but people who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. People who somewhere along life, though their own rebellion, had made them enemies with God. Our own sin has made us, separated us from God the Father. But Jesus Christ has intervened in history. He came and lived that perfect, sinless existence. He went to the cross where he paid the price for our sin. And upon him, all of the wrath that was due our sin was placed upon his shoulders. He paid the price for us. He rose from the dead. He triumphed over sin. He proved that he is who he said he was, and he's now ascended into heaven, and he promises to return to collect the redeemed people, the joint heirs of Jesus, those who have been adopted into the family of God and who have been done so only by faith in him, not because we've earned it, not because we were so smart or so holy or so special, but because Jesus opened our eyes and we are destined to live with him forever. That's one category. That's hopefully most of the people in here. But then there's that other category. People who are still slaves to sin. People who are still struggling with issues in life and don't have the hope of Jesus. People who don't understand the reality of what is absolutely coming one day. And whether it's people that don't choose to believe in hell, have never heard of such a thing, who don't know Jesus or have heard it and just pushed it aside, whatever the case may be, unless Jesus is preached to them, and unless the Spirit opens their eyes, the Bible makes it very clear that their eternal destiny is a very grim one. And so they're still in bondage to sin, still in bondage to self Still living, searching for fulfillment and hope and happiness in thing after thing after thing, all of them destined to let them down. Except we have the answer. We have the antidote. We have the magic potion. We have the answer that every one of them is looking for. And so then the question is this who will go? Who will tell them? Will you? Can you? That's not a small question. And and I'm not laying this, again, this is not a guilt trip to lay upon the church. I am with you in this. This is something that even Paul himself understood the weight and gravity of. I mean, think about it. The relationships that you have with people, eternal destiny may very well hang in the balance. I mean, Paul says it right in our text. He says, through us, he spreads the aroma of the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. From one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance of life to life. And then he says, who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> it's sort of a um, redundant question or, or whatever that word is. Rhetorical question? Whatever. It's just sort of a silly question. He's, in other words, he's saying, "No, no one. Who could possibly among us? I mean, we are, it would be the equivalent of pulling this lady out of the lake, she's standing there wrestling with hypothermia and still sort of fighting for her life in a certain sense and going, now someone just fell out of that boat right there, go get them. Who's sufficient for that? We're going to get to that next week in chapter three where it says that Jesus Christ has already made us sufficient ministers of the gospel. But it's a heavy question. It's something that most Christians wrestle with. Most Christians would like to, to not, even, not even look at it. It's, it's a massive, massive responsibility. It's one thing to pull a lady out of a lake. It's another thing to pull someone out of hell. But here's the thing that we need to remind ourselves from time to time. The only reason, Christian, talking to Christians here, the only reason we are still here is because there are people destined for hell that Jesus still wants to save. That's the only reason we are still here. You go, know, well, where do you get that from? Well, the Bible. <laughs> In the book of Second Peter, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But then the next verse does say, but the day of the Lord will come. It's in the context of people that are saying, you church people, you've been saying this heaven and hell stuff, and Jesus is coming back, you've been saying it for years, but day after day, things just continue the way they are. I've heard those messages that say, you have no guarantee that you're going to live today. If you were to die today, where would you be? But day after day after day, things continue the way they are. And Peter says, but know something, he's not slack, God hasn't forgot his promise, he hasn't decided not to come, he's coming. He's coming. But the only reason he hasn't come yet is because he is being patient, waiting. Because people you know, people we know, that we work with, that we live next door to, that we shop next to, that we play golf with, that we fish with, people that we know are headed towards an eternal destiny away from Jesus. And he wants them to be saved. And so he's patient. But the text does go on to say, but the day of the Lord will come. That all these things that we know will one day be dissolved. And he concludes in verse 11 of that text and he says, Knowing then that all of the things around us, knowing that this world as we know it will one day dissolve, what manner of persons ought we to be? That's what Peter says. What manner of persons ought we to be? This is the only reason that the church is still here. For the mission of saving people. For the mission of people meeting Jesus. So what should we do? So what do we do about that? Should we start planning a lot more, maybe big evangelistic outreaches? Maybe we should put our elders in sandwich boards on street corners. Maybe we should start handing out bullhorns as everyone leaves church. Buy tons of tracts, give them out everywhere we go. What should we do? I I actually think that there's a lot of confusion with regards to evangelism. There's a lot of bad ideas for sure with regards to evangelism, but that this text in particular shows us three things that no matter what God should lead each individual towards, no matter what manner of evangelism God might lay before each individual person, I think there are three things in this particular text that every single one of us is going to need if we want to see the people that we love saved from hell. And that that's why we're here. So it's a simple message. Here's they are. The number one is, we're going to need a genuine relationship with God. Number two, a genuine relationship with God's people. And number three, genuinely intentional about the gospel. So let's look at them. Number one, if we want to lead people to Jesus, we're going to have to have a genuine relationship with Jesus ourselves. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those being saved and those perishing. Paul uses this analogy of fragrance. This idea that as we walk into the room, we carry a certain awareness or knowledge, if you will, of God. In the same way, like if you had some sort of really strong perfume when you would walk into the room, it would bring an awareness of you as you came into the room. And really the best picture of this, this idea of this fragrance of the knowledge of God should probably lead us back to John chapter 12. We've got the text, if we could put it up on the screen. It's a famous story. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. In this story, there's three main characters. There's Jesus, of course. There's Mary of Bethany, her sister Martha we know very well. And then there's Judas. Now, Judas is the false disciple in this story. The text makes it very, very clear. He had no real desire to help the poor. He had no real heart to see other people do well or be saved. He was in it for himself. He was after the money. And so he's looking at these things as opportunities to increase his own wealth and his own benefit. But Mary, on the other hand, is the one with the genuine relationship with Jesus. Oh, Judas spent more time. He's one of the disciples. He spent more time there, but he had no real relationship with Jesus at all. He was absolutely consumed with self. But Mary's the one who comes in here. She takes. She's not after money. She's pouring it out, if you will worshiping Jesus, anointing him for burial. She even gets it. Like he says, she's doing this unto my burial. I mean, most of the disciples don't even understand what's about to happen to Jesus, but she seems to. And the scriptures say that the room was filled with the aroma of that fragrance while we were there. And it's even more than that. Here's Mary having this legitimate genuine encounter with Jesus using her hair to wipe his feet pouring this perfume out but what's going to happen there is as Mary leaves that room everywhere she goes she's carrying with her the scent the aroma of that encounter with Jesus maybe for days Whether she's in the store, whether she's in her house, whether she's walking down the street, there's something she's carrying with her that is the overflow, the result of this genuine interaction with Jesus. And and the best way I've heard this explained before, um, we'll we'll do it this way. Look, I'm, I'm a North Carolina boy. Here's another secret about me. I love Tar Heel basketball. And one of my favorite athletes of all time is Michael Jordan. And I know a ton about Michael Jordan. I know a ton. I've seen him play college games in person many times when he played for Carolina. I I, I could tell you stories that have been forgotten, and I don't even mean just, just the stories of him hitting the game winner in the 82 championship. I'm talking about seeing him in the Virginia game when it's Ralph Sampson coming right down to the end and he stole the ball, goes down with just seconds remaining, big old just tomahawk dunk. They refer to it this day as the thunder dunk because it erupted and they win this game. I remember watching that. I could tell you tons about Michael Jordan. I know a lot about Michael Jordan, but look, I don't know Michael Jordan. And my fear is there are a lot of people that know Jesus in the same way that I know Michael Jordan. They know a lot about him. They may have spent a lot of time learning about him. They might have grown up in areas where they heard the stories over and over and over, but there's no genuine relationship there. And if you want to see the people around you saved, you will be a much better evangelist if you are saved. We laugh, but isn't it true? It's the truth. He says that we are the aroma of the knowledge of God. There's something about us that brings knowledge of God to a situation. So I think implied in that is the fact that we actually know God. And we shouldn't take that for granted. We should not just know God in general, but understand the gospel, understand what he's done for us. And people that know Jesus, that know who they are and know what Jesus has done, oh, they're going to be so much more effective at telling people about Jesus Because there's this thing that Paul talks about in this story regarding triumphal procession. He says that he always leads us in triumphal procession. Let me give you some cultural context to what those were like in the day. A triumphal procession was a parade that was meant to celebrate military victories. They were very common in that day. In fact, could you put the first picture up? This is called the Ark of Titus. It's in Rome. Emperor Titus, you remember, he's the one that came in and destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So his brother, Domitian, after Titus died, had this ark built to celebrate all of Titus's great military victories. In fact, go to the next slide. On this ark are images of the people and the soldiers carrying loot and carrying goods out of Jerusalem after their raid into Israel. It's right there on the actual ark itself. And there's a picture also on the ark, let's go to the last one here, of a triumphal procession. Now it's tough to make out a little bit, especially in this room, but here's what you see here. When a triumphal procession took place, the conquering king or general would be put in this really fancy triumphal chariot. That's what they called it. And this chariot would be pulled by four horses, all right beside each other, four wide, these horses. Or in some cases, there's even historical accounts of triumphant processions where they were pulled by four elephants, believe it or not. But in this case, it would be horses. And here you have a picture of Titus. He's in a chariot, and there's four horses lined up there. Now, listen, this is what they would do. Titus goes off. He wins this big victory. They come back and they're going to do the triumphal procession. So all the people would gather. The parade route is laid out. And what would happen is, is first these priests, these pagan priests would go through carrying these incense things. And just the whole area would fill with this smell of this incense. Then would come the chariot pulled by the four horses. Titus himself, he would be covered in a purple robe, a royal purple robe, given a scepter and a crown. And they would put him in the chariot and lead him through this procession so that everyone could see how glorious he was. In addition, they would actually paint or tint his face red. And this was a a show of support or homage or whatever you want to call it to their pagan god, Jupiter, who was considered the king of all the gods. And so Jupiter, red face, here he's got all this stuff, and he goes marching through these different areas. He goes marching through the parade route. And the people would cheer and celebrate, and the scent is filling the area. And then behind him, behind the chariot, would be the prisoners of war. So if they took a certain city, they would gather the dignitaries and the wealthy and the people of influence, chain them up all together, strip them of their clothing, and they would be marched in one by one right behind this conquering king, his trophies behind him. Naked, disgraced, humiliated, and mocked. And it just gets worse from there because at the end of the parade route, they would be killed. This is the triumphal procession. And Paul says, thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession. That doesn't sound real good, right? Because if he's leading us, who are we? We're the prisoners, right? Except Jesus. Because the scriptures tell us that our conquering king came. That he was robed with a purple robe, he was given a scepter and a crown, was he not? His face was red too, but red because of the blood pouring down his face and even bursting out of his very capillaries. He was put on a parade route, was he not? But it wasn't us being humiliated, it was him. Marched, naked, along this parade route, until outside the city he's lifted up on a cross for all to see, so that all can mock a sign ahead of him saying the king of the jews and he was murdered at the end of this route he was the one put in that procession so that now when it says that we are led in triumphal procession well colossians says that it's not us it's leading it says god has conquered the powers of darkness and he has made a mockery a public display of them so it's the enemy that's being paraded around you're in the chariot is that not insane Because what did we win? Nothing. What did we conquer? Nothing. But we have been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When he was put on display, it took you out of the prisoner line and landed you slap in the middle of the triumphal chariot. That's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This room is not a room full of people who have conquered Satan and gotten saved because of it. It is a room full of people who have been plucked from death and set to walk in high places by the grace of God alone. That's what this room is. And when you understand that, when you understand who you were and now who you are, and that it was just God's grace that got you there, it makes it a whole lot easier to tell people about Jesus. If you want to see people around you being saved, know Jesus. And if you are saved, look, the gospel's not, as we've said a million times, the gospel's not your ticket in. Like it's this understanding that we have an ongoing relationship with God himself. That every morning we have the privilege of waking up to brand new mercies and the opportunity to spend time with him. And you know why the Bible says that there's brand new mercies every day? Because we blow it every day. And yet, we still get to come to him. We still get to spend time with the Father. Because we're not POWs, we are sons and daughters of the King. And when you know this, the more time you spend understanding the gospel, spend time at Jesus' feet, you will understand the gospel and how can you help but tell people after that? When you know your friends that are dealing with things, how can you help but tell them? This is the gospel. And it's amazing. It's, it's Again, it's not even on us to tell them so much as, it's like take your daughter to work day. Take your son to work day. Like God just lets us play on his team. He puts us in the chariot just because he loves us. It's a privilege to be part of that. Amen? Well, that's one. I'm going too long. we got to hurry up. Number two. In addition to having a genuine relationship with God, you need to have a genuine relationship with people. And again, these seem really elementary, right? Like, well, duh, if I'm going to tell people about Jesus, I should know people. But I, I want you to think about this. Look what Paul says, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. Now, you look at that at first, it'd be really easy to blow right past that verse and go, ah, travel plan stuff, just move on. But, but here's what Paul's saying in this text. Paul had written them, he told us, we saw it in last week's test, he had written them this letter. Because his heart was broken because of what was going on in the church. And because of how their relationship had been damaged. And he desperately wanted to be reunited with these people because he loved them dearly. And what he's saying is, I go to Troas and God had opened up this door and there was this ministry all over the place. There was a great work that could have been done. Man, I could have built a ministry. I could have built a church. There were tons of things that I could have done, but I couldn't do it. I left all of that aside because it was killing me. I had to find Titus because I had to know how was that letter received. That's what he's saying. Titus had been dispatched to go find out how the Corinthian people were doing. And Paul was so racked with angst, wanting to know what was going on with these people that he so genuinely loved, that he was willing to walk away from all kinds of opportunity for the sake of the people that he missed and loved so dearly. Like, Paul's relationships with people are for real. Paul loved this church. There's no other reason that he would keep reaching out to a people who were just slapping his hand down constantly. I mean he talks about leading sheep. These were sheep that bit him over and over and over and yet he kept coming back because he genuinely loved them. And as a Christian we need to understand we are all to one degree or another people persons. We are called. This is why we're here. The whole reason that the church is here is because we want to see people meet Jesus. And so so here's the thing. Not only should we have like genuine relationships with people in general, but, but here's what I really want to push particularly in this room. Like if we want to see unsaved people meet Jesus, that means we have to know who? Unsaved people. And here's what tends to happen. In the Bible, we see calls to holiness, calls to we're in the world, but we're not of the world, calls to live differently, calls not to follow the world into the things that they do, but we also see texts that are about mission, about reaching out, about serving, about doing all these things, and here's what happens. We tend to look at these things as mutually exclusive, and there's tension between the two of those, so on one side, I need to be separate and holy unto God. But on the other side, I'm called to engage a world that is antagonistic to God. And so we have seen, you can study church history and you can see these massive pendulum swings back and forth from one extreme to the other. Either complete fundamentalism and isolation from the rest of the world or engagement to the degree that people forget who they are. There's tension in that. But what we have to understand, especially in this valley, with so many amazing churches and so many Christian people that it becomes so easy to end up living in this little Christian bubble, completely isolated from anyone outside of the grace of God. And can I just say, watch out for that. That's not healthy for us. That's not healthy for us. Now, now you can go too far with that. Sweet. Going to the strip club tonight. Jeff said so. No. No. Can it? No. But listen, Jesus is our example. That's what Peter says. He's the example that was left for us. And in Jesus Christ, we see absolute, holy, sinless life who was not afraid to mix it up with the unbeliever for the sake of their salvation. I mean, there's another story where another woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet while he's having dinner with, if you will, the church folk of the day, the religious, the Pharisees. And as this woman is washing his feet, one of the Pharisees sort of says to himself, but kind of loud enough so that Jesus picks up on it, he says, if he was a real prophet, he would know what kind of woman is doing this right now, because she is a sinner, but Jesus responds, "Like this is why I came. He says earlier in the book of Mark, healthy people don't need surgeons. The sick need surgeons. They are the ones, they're why I came. And so even if you think, if you carry that analogy out, if you go to the doctor, if you're going to have surgery, are the surgeons clean? Yes. <laughs> All right, let's try this again. Wake up. Are the surgeons clean? Yes, they put a lot of effort into that, don't they? Scrubbing up, clean clothes, all of those kinds of things, pure as they can possibly be before they go into the room, right? But they don't go in there and go, oh, blood. <laughs> not a surgeon you should go to anyway, right? I mean, they're, they're not afraid to mix it up. Their arms are going to get a little bloody. And yeah, there's a big mess to clean up, but right now dude's heart is on a table here and i got to put it back in, so we'll worry about the mess later. That's what surgeons do. And and so for us, we have to be, and and there should be tension in this, okay? There should be. A tension between I'm called to live a holy life set apart for God, but understanding that Peter goes on to tell us that we are a separate people. We are a, a holy priesthood set apart for God. And what are we set apart for? He goes on to say, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved us. So we are set apart to the mission of proclaiming the gospel to people that don't know him. And, and to do that, we're gonna have to have some genuine relationships with people that don't know Jesus. We, we, we're gonna just have to get to know them. And I mean, think about it just right now for a second. Just do some honest assessment. How many people in your life do you have genuine one-on-one relationships that, with people that just they don't know, don't know Jesus at all? And how are those relationships managed? When was the last time That you and your house, you opened your home up to a family who is not part of the church, not believers, don't know Jesus. You invited them over for dinner. When was the last time that you do that? Because it becomes so easy to live in that little Christian bubble. And we're supposed to fellowship with one another. But we need to remind ourselves from time to time that the reason we are here. The end result of everything that we do, even as a church, while we're here, is for people to come to know Jesus. That's why we're still here. And I think somewhere along the line, we sort, of, um, uh, we sort of did it to ourselves in a sense. I'm not a big fan of the giant crusades. If you're a big Greg Laurie crusade fan, just don't email me. I know people get saved in those, but, but I just don't find those kinds of things to be the most effective method for evangelism at all. And we've done them. Like, we've tried about everything, but the reality of it is most people that I meet that are in our church that get saved, they they get saved because they had a friend here that they were just friends with for a long time, and a lot of times because in the course of their friendship, something happened that kind of rocked their world, and it was this Christian-believing friend that was by their side even before that day came that they turned to. And God used those scenarios to save. They weren't manipulated. They weren't being peddled. It wasn't some sort of relationship where they just sneak them in the door, like an Amway meeting or anything like that. It was genuine relationships, just genuine, honest relationships. And, and I know for me, I am so guilty of this. I, I, as I was been, the Lord really convicted me of this a while back. I wasn't going to tell the story. I'm going to tell the story. Yeah, I'm going to tell the story. So, um, so. My, my my wife and I had gone out to dinner with some friends, and we went to this one restaurant, and the food was really lame. We're trying to figure out somewhere else to go. We ended up downtown at a kind of little pub restaurant with the best fish tacos in the world. So we're sitting down there eating, and that night they're doing this thing that's like a trivia, some sort of pub trivia night thing that they were doing. And so our table, you play as a table. We're like, yeah, let's do this, man. We're smart, let's play. So we were all in there, and at a certain point in the, the, the night, they had music trivia. And I am a wealth of useless knowledge. I mean, I, I, there's things in my head, like I have to wrestle to memorize scripture, but I know lyrics to songs that I wish I would never remember again, and things like that. And they had this, this music trivia thing where they were mashing two songs together, and you had to listen and try to figure out who the two artists were. And my wife's like, that's Jeff, go. And so they had to send a person from each table up to their bar area so you could hear the music really clear and listen. So here I go in, Pastor Jeff, cruised up, hanging out at the bar. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking around all of the people there, and they're playing the music. And I, I realized instantly, all right, I'm old. I don't know any of these songs. <laughs> I'm like, is there any 90s music? I got that down, man. The grunge stuff, I can nail that. But this was new stuff, and I'm old. I don't know any of this stuff. And Imagine Dragons, I might be okay. Other than that, I know nothing. And so I was sitting there. But here's what I started doing. I was looking around, and that particular day, I was really, really discouraged over some conflict that I was dealing with within the church, and I was just discouraged. It was just one of those days where it was like, man, what are we going to do about this situation, and just, I was just really wrestling with it, and so I was standing there, listening to music that I didn't know, just writing down like Led Zeppelin to every answer, (laughs) and and I started looking around the room, and I'm not going to lie to you. Some people were feeling good in that room. There were some happy folk, if you know what I'm saying. And I started looking around the room, and it it was, I, I just, it was like I felt God just press on my spirit, saying, you have spent so much time worrying about all these little things and all these little intricacies and all this stuff, but Jeff, how much time do you spend thinking about these people? Because in, in, in some of these, if they don't meet Jesus, they're gonna die, and they're gonna end up in hell. And I remember just looking around the room, And that's really just started something that has been burning in me for a while now. Just this idea of, man, how do we reach them? Because there's people that are going to die. If we really understood the gravity of that, we wouldn't be able to even say that without tears in our eyes. And so how do we build relationships with people? One of the things the Lord has put on my heart for sure is like, I can't just stand up here and tell you to do that. I have to do that too. And so I'm still in the process of praying, Lord, Lord, okay, I'm in that Christian bubble. I know it right now. So how how do I start making intentional relationships with people that don't know you and that don't know me as Pastor Jeff? They're just, I'm just Jeff. And I'm really praying through a lot of those things. But can I, can I hand that to you as well? Because you will interact with people that will never set foot through this door and they need to know Jesus. And if they feel manipulated, it's not going to happen. If they feel like there's some trophy to be won, it's not going to happen. But if they think you love them, and if they believe that you're going to be there for them, and I'm talking even like the first time you bring Jesus' name up and they shut it down, you don't just bail. Oh, well, on to the next one. But know that you are modeling the gospel, and you are pursuing them, if you will. We need those sorts of relationships if we want to see people one to Jesus. And then finally this one, and we got to hustle. We need to be genuine and intentional about proclaiming the gospel. Verse 17 says this, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. That last phrase in, in the sight of God we what? Say it nice and loud with conviction. In the sight of God we speak in Christ. And this is where this is really important it is important that we have relationships with people that don't know Jesus so that we can lead them to Jesus. But look, you need to be intentional about that relationship because at some point you have to tell them about Jesus. And that's the hard part, isn't it? Because, well, that's scary. Oh, but there's, those, there's that quote. This will make it easier. There's that quote. At all times, preach the gospel if necessary. I hate that quote. That's another one of my pet peeves. I actually, it's, it's actually a great quote. I mean, in the sense, is it's, a, it's accredited to Augustine. He probably didn't say it. We don't really know who said it. It's a great quote in the sense that the lives we live should back up the gospel that we preach. In that sense, it's a great quote. But what it has also become is an excuse for some people to not tell other people about Jesus. And so it becomes, I'm gonna live a life That's really holy and good, and I'm going to do a lot of good acts for people, and I'm going to become friends with this person and that person. I'm going to serve them. I'll do a lot of stuff. And then if they ask, I'll tell them about Jesus. Is that what we're called to do? Here's the thing. We're not saved by a philosophy or a lifestyle. We are saved by a man. And his name is Jesus. And the Bible says there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. So, at all times, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Parentheses, it's always necessary. Now I like that quote. That's the reality of it. I mean, let's continue thinking through some of this. Let's think about another woman that Jesus had an interaction with. In John chapter 4, Jesus comes to a well in the middle of the day, and he meets a Samaritan woman. Now this is a woman who is on the fringe, This is a woman who you're going to have to get way outside the Christian bubble to go have an interaction with this lady. She's coming to the well in the middle of the day. The reason she comes to the well in the middle of the day is because when everybody else comes in the morning, they would see her and she would instantly become the object of all of their attention and all their discussion. She's referred to as a woman of the city. She's a woman of ill repute. She's had many, many husbands, and she has put her hope in relationship with a man to the next man, to the next man, to the next man. And now she's living with a guy that's not even her husband. So she's coming to get water in the middle of the day, which no one did, so that she doesn't have to face the scrutiny of who she is. And Jesus comes to her, and he starts talking to her. The text even says that the disciples, as you're going to see in a minute, they marveled that Jesus was talking to her. Like, what are you, why are you talking to her? And so Jesus starts to have a genuine interaction with her. He starts to actually just talk with her about who she is. He says, where's your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had a lot of husbands. And the guy that you're with right now, he's not your husband either, is he? And then in the course of this conversation, he begins to present himself as the answer that she has been looking for in every single one of these relationships. She's come to the well for water. He says, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. She says, give me that drink. I want that drink. And then look what the scripture comes to. Can you put the slide up? There it is. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? It's one of the few times the disciples kept their mouths shut wisely. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, we should open a coffee shop and be super nice to customers and donate all the money to charity, let them bring their dogs in and get to know them, so that when they ask why we're so nice, if the sun, moon, and stars align, and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends down, lands upon our heads, we will tell them about Jesus. Is that what it says? No, look what it says. I met a man. That's all she says. No, not another man, not another temporary solution, not another place that I can put my hope in this thing and this thing and this thing. I met a man. I just thought he was a rabbi. I thought he was just some teacher, but it turns out he might be the savior of the world. You gotta come meet him. You gotta come meet this man. Now, this woman hasn't been through evangelism training. This lady didn't go through a Billy Graham crusade program to teach him how to give the four points of the gospel. She hasn't even cleaned herself up yet. But she says, I met a man. You've got to come meet him. And what's the result? Verse 29, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Guys, this is the point. This is why we are here. The job you have, God has put you there because there's people that need to meet Jesus. The family you're in, God has put you there because there's people that need to meet Jesus. The hobby you have, the sports team you like, the neighborhood you live in, there are people that need to meet Jesus. So we got to say his name. We got to tell people, you got to meet this man. You've you got to understand, he is the savior of the world. And it doesn't just come by osmosis. we got to say, his name is Jesus. And the only reason that we will leave this place today and not do that is if we're afraid. That's really what it all boils down to. The only thing that would keep us from sharing such good news with everyone else is if we're afraid. That's why people like that quote, if necessary, use words, because they don't want to use words, because people might say no. And maybe you've used words before, and people have ended relationships with you because they didn't want to hear that name anymore. That's expected. Paul says it right here in the text. He says that we are the fragrance of life to some, and it's the fragrance of death to others. To some, the message of the gospel is sweet. It is water to a thirsty soul. And to others, it stinks. But we got to keep preaching it. Because what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Lives hang in the very balance. And God has given us, he has saved us by his grace. And he's called us to play on his team. To share the name of Jesus with others. So I I challenge you, Heritage Family, this church right here. And if we want to see a move of the Spirit in this place. And that is what I'm praying for right now more than anything. I've seen so much in just the six years that we've been here. um, And and I've talked with so many other pastors um, in this valley and outside of this valley. I've seen teachings that say, here's how to get more people to come to your church. Here's how to get more people to come to your church. And it's usually just things aimed at attracting other church people. But but who's going after the people at the pub that are drowning away their fears and their sorrows? Who's going after the person that works next to you? Who's going after the ones that don't know Jesus? I, I, I pray that we would burn with this. I would love to see our church I, I just want to see a work of God where people are coming in that don't know Jesus and getting saved. And you know what ends up happening? They become the best evangelists in the whole group. It's the people, there's even statistics on this. You, you have a better shot, or people see, seem to bring more people to Jesus in the first two years of their Christian experience than they do the last 50. Because we just end up in our comfortable Christian bubble. But church, may we be on board with the mission of Jesus Christ. May we understand that everything we are doing is to the end that people meet Jesus. I encourage you, pray about this. What does this mean in your life? How are you, you know who the people are. you got people on your mind even right now, I'm certain. So how are you going to reach them? How is God through you going to reach them? Are you building a relationship and do you realize maybe now it's time to actually drop the name? And if they reject you, will you have the humility to continue to pursue but will you have the strength and courage to keep speaking the name? Because lives hang in the balance. Time is short, hell is hot, and Jesus is coming. Amen? There's this old song we used to sing. Will you guys stand with me? There's this old song we used to sing. I'm an old Baptist boy growing up, and I seems like at the end, every altar call and those things that we ever had in the church, we always sing this one song. Can you guys put the lyrics to that song up there, please? No? No? Oh, someone's fired. Well, Sam, come up and lead us, will you? you guys bow your heads? Some of you know it anyway. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Sing, Come Home, come home, come home. is calling calling oh sinner come home sing that chorus again come home come